forever. Dog. Welcome to Public Intellectual. Public Intellectual is a podcast supported solely by its listeners. So if you would like this podcast to continue to exist, you can go to patreon.com slash public intellectual. And in exchange for your money, because we do live under capitalism, you will get access to bonus episodes, show notes, a tote bag, of course, and apparently a zine, because I pressured Jen May into agreeing to do one with me um, simply by announcing that it was going to happen on this podcast itself. So go to patreon.com slash public intellectual. Now that Tim Ferriss, who I like to call the Gemini devil, although maybe that devil is redundant anyway, now that he has convinced us that what we really need in our lives is experiences, travel has significantly changed. What is wanted now is not the package tour or the greatest hits of an exotic locale, but authenticity. We want to experience Berlin as a Berliner, without having to speak German or deal with Holocaust guilt or really enjoy public nudity or any of the other things that also signify authentic Berlinerness. It's not all doing drugs at Berghain and cycling alongside the spree. There are consequences to this new form of travel, from the environmental impact of so many international flights to massive displacement in trendy neighborhoods for Airbnb vacation rentals, to unfair distribution of tourist dollars, and so on. But travel writing has never been great at dealing with the ethical or moral questions of travel. It's very narcissistic and internal. Even while someone is perfectly describing a beautiful landscape, they are delving into the self, having a marketable epiphany, and branding themselves as a boundary crosser, as a trickster or a rambling hero. The point of travel, as viewed through the travel writer, is the impact the journey is having on the traveler, not the impact the traveler is having on the place. What I want out of my travel writing is just a little self-awareness. Now that everyone with means travels now, it's not a special difficult thing. Any guy working on an app can take a cheap flight to Bali and live there for six months, It's no longer a rarefied experience, but we still talk and write about it as if it were. I asked Haley Swanson to come and talk about travel writing with me as I had read her piece in Electric Literature about women's travel memoirs. It was smart and self-aware and interesting and really good about common travel writing narratives and how silly some of them are. So I invited her to discuss this at length, starting with the new travel columnist at the New York Times. The New York Times has their new ish. I guess they've they have like half a dozen pieces so far. Um fifty-two places columnist. And um I guess I'm surprised that I'm disappointed by it. I guess um, being what it is and being part of the New York Times travel section, I I should have been aware that it was going to be, um, you know, uh, bad. Uh, But I am, I am actually kind of disappointed in how, and how it's worked out. Um, So I don't know how you've sort of um, 
uh, been reading the pieces, but I was wondering what you, what you thought of them. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the first thing that just must be addressed when discussing this uh, columnist is the articles that were published, you know, before she was even selected, just about the massive amounts of applicants that they had um, and the massive amounts of people who wanted this job and um, really, you know, felt themselves to be the informed world traveler that should be reporting from all of these places for, you know, the New York Times. Um, and, you know, I, I did read that part of her story. I watched her uh, submission video and, you know, really liked some of the things she had to say uh, specifically about, you know, being a woman who travels. Um, and then, you know, when she began to write, it was hard for me to judge some of her um her perceptions of places that I haven't been, it was a little bit easier for me to read, um, like for example, about new Orleans or about San Juan. Cause those are both places that I've been, um, just to see, you know, how her perception maybe mirrored mine or didn't mirror mine. And San Juan in particular, I was, I don't know if I was surprised they sent her there or not. Um, I saw the headline. I definitely thought to myself, this is going to be interesting. I wonder how, how this is going to go. Um, and, you know, she mentioned Despacito twice within the, uh, the feature, which I found um, funny, also strange. Um, and I, I did appreciate, at the end at least, you know, she, she makes the, the gesture of saying, you know, I got to see San Juan the way that it is right now. And it won't always be that way. And it's struggling right now. Um, so I'm just seeing it as a snapshot. And I think that was what in the other pieces, you know, struck me is sometimes she doesn't really go out of her way to make that concession that she's only seeing this place at this exact moment in time. Um, and the place exists even when she's not there and it continues to have a life even when she's not watching it have a life. So, you know, in some places I can see her being self-conscious and, and realizing that travel is, um, not all encompassing, but I think the main problem I have with her other pieces is sometimes she just kind of skips that part. Yeah. I'm, obviously it's a near impossible job. I mean, to go to 52 places in the span of a year and to write, like you said, as a, not just as a travel writer, but as a New York times sort of authority, um, is, is a, an extremely difficult job, but even on that level, um, to me, the, uh, you know, she mentions the first piece I think was new Orleans, right? The, that was the first piece. And she mentions, um, you know, brass bands and beignets. <laughs> um, and it just feels like Wikipedia depth, um, research and engagement and I think my other problem with it is that she sort of, you know, she writes about her Uber driver and how happy her Uber driver is to be an Uber driver without sort of mentioning in any way how the sharing economy is is completely trashing New Orleans. Um, and I know that that's not a popular subject matter in travel writing that ethics of travel writing and yet the fact that we are increasingly mobile and we are people travel more than they ever have 
it seems like this should be part of the conversation of how do you travel while not being an asshole. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I noticed that too. And it felt strange because I could see the sentiment behind her talking about her Uber driver and, you know, the type of revenue that Uber and Lyft bring in and the type of that you meet when you're in an Uber or a Lyft. You know, I, I saw her like efforts to talk about just random people she meets instead of, you know, this more cliche image of like her and her tennis shoes with the holes in the bottom. Um, but it's still, it was kind of like, were there other places that you could have met just regular people who live in new Orleans versus like having this person drive you from point A to point B in new Orleans, you know? Plus it's the laziest trick in the travel writing book is to okay. interview your, your taxi driver. <laughs> Honestly, yeah. like it's yeah. in every, it's in every travel book. <laughs> I've done it. God knows everybody's <laughs> done it. It's like, Oh, here is a common person. And they're going to give me like a funny anecdote. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And obviously, you know, being an Uber or Lyft driver or a taxi driver, they know the role that they're playing in your narrative. You know, they know that, that they're the person you see as like really understanding this place in a way that you can't access. And so you're going to ask them all these questions and, you know, they're going to be the person from new Orleans, you know, they're going to be, they're going to try and embody that even if it's subconsciously. And I've long had a problem with the New York times 52 places uh, list before they decided to just, you know, uh, send somebody to all the places. Um, Mostly the, just the, the kind of uh, consumerist um, aspect of it, of just like, here are places you don't need to know anything about except for um, this one hotel or this nice beach or whatever. And I, I remember a couple of years ago, I was, in, um, I was in Athens when it came out, and there was a, um, uh, an entry about Turkey and in the, you should go to Turkey this year. And, and it said the reason for having Turkey on the list was because while the financial crisis in Greece has been severe, it hasn't lowered the prices of traveling there. So you should just go to Turkey instead um, and, and wait for the economic collapse of Greece to continue so that it will be cheaper for you to go. And I, was, and I just wanted everybody to die. Like I just wanted like a mass firebombing of that building. Yeah. That's, that's very problematic. I would. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, but so to, to take this conversation beyond just complaining about one travel writer, um, the, the reason I wanted to talk about it, uh, the subject of just sort of, you know, uh, travel writing is bad, um, is because we do have this changing way that we travel and this increased ability to travel cheaply and, uh, to places that we have no knowledge about and to survive there. Um, and, um, it's, it seems like travel writing itself has not kept up with the changing of, and so it, it's stuck in these very specific, um, modes. And one mode that you wrote about specifically was the kind of, um, sex travel or, um, traveling to a place and engaging with it through your sexual partners. <laughs> um, so I was wondering if you wanted to talk about the PC that you wrote a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I think it was, you know, it started out as definitely, well, me searching for female tra travel writers that I enjoyed started out as a very narcissistic pursuit. Now I really wanted to see how other women traveled 
hoping that they would travel sort of like I perceived myself to travel. And, you know, I ended up stumbling across some writers. The one that I speak about a lot in um, the essay is Kristen Newman. Um, And it's, you know, it's funny. And I, you know, I also talk about this, but she really did reflect how I traveled when I was in, you know, 2021. Um, But I didn't perceive myself to be that way at the time, you know, especially as a woman getting attention from foreign men while traveling, you know, you find that like this huge privilege, like this, this big sign that like you were always destined to be a world traveler because look at the way that these people are reacting to me being in their country. Um, And I think that's a, you know, it's, it's weird because you have to kind of toe that line between a lot of people think it's dangerous as a woman to travel alone, which it certainly is, you know? So you have all those people who are hyper aware of like you being a female and a target because you're a female. And then, you know, maybe you don't get, you know, murdered and left in the ditch, but you're still a target to a certain extent because all these men are seeing that you're by yourself and that you're from a different place and that you're looking to have an experience in this place you're visiting, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I feel like that's a kind of, um, you know, if we're, if we're talking about sort of travel writing cliches, um, that's, that's a big one as far as, um, women's writing goes, uh, of the, uh, vulnerability. And then, and so then for, uh, therefore bravery, right? Like, so then it's, uh, look at how brave I am by being on the road. Um, and I feel like that's sort of like every seal press travel anthology of women, uh, writing, uh, about travel, um, is just the, the narrative of, uh, of, um, transgression right a woman is is supposed to be in the home not on the road and so presenting oneself as uh, particularly interesting or brave just by um buying a plane ticket to somewhere else right exactly it's i mean it's that narrative of escapism um that is so present in writing in general and you know one of the main motivations that you know in her book Kristen newman says that she has is she doesn't like the narrative that's presented to her which is you grow up, you find a man, you have some children, and you buy a house. You know, she didn't like that, so she went looking for something else. And I think that there's something, there is something brave in looking for something else. I just don't know if it's the most ethical thing to look for something else in a country you don't know that much about and still through a man. You know, just because he's like a man from Chile, he doesn't make him, you know, that different from an American man in some ways when it comes to, you know, aspects of, of being a male in general. Right. So this is, this is the, um, Oh, what is the title of it? What, what I was doing while you were breeding. Is that? Yeah. Um, yeah. Which even the title made me absolutely furious when I saw it. Um, you know, um, there is a definite sort of category of, um, women travel writing, mostly women. I mean, and, and probably it, it is unfair to actually sort of subcategorize it as, as, as a woman's writing problem, because, um, certainly Paul Thoreau has done this for years. Um, Lawrence Durrell did this, like all, all of that, you know, uh, uh, Sir Richard Francis Burton had that sort of, you know, uh, delicious quip about, um, 
the best way to learn a new language is in the arms of uh, the love uh, your lover, the native speaker, because they'll teach you all the poetry um, and and the the romance of the language. And then when her husband finds you in bed with her, he'll teach you all the the foul language and street language that you need to survive. Um, which is uh, it's a great line, but um, it's it's the same it's the same thing of. Uh, learning a place through a by sexualizing it by by sexualizing a and in fetishizing a a a foreign body right right exactly and there there have got to be i mean there there are other ways to get that same quote unquote you know insider experience they just might be harder to achieve or take longer to achieve it doesn't take that long to go out to a bar in the city you're in and find someone to sleep with, you know, maybe it would take a little bit longer to like be alone and how uncomfortable that feels. And, you know, instead of doing it for an hour and then deciding that you're done with it, but, Oh, I did it for an hour. So obviously I really know what it feels like to, you know, be in a country by myself with a language barrier. It's just not that quick. Right. And, and also not as sort of, um, uh, fantastical in, in the sense of, you know, when people, um, it's one of the, one of the dreams of travel. So you, it's, it's playing to your reader's expectations of this place is going to transform you and, and, and um, uh, provide you with the thing that you're lacking, which is romance or sex or, you know, whatever. Um, there was this great movie, um, uh, the German director uh, Ulrich Seidel's uh, Paradise um, about a white woman going to to Africa um, and you know uh, sleep sleeping with some two, like this middle aged sort of frumpy German woman who finds herself exotic um, because uh, she's fetishizing all of these black men, these African men, um, and um, yeah, and and so it definitely sort of plays into what. Um, the reader wants to hear, which is if they go to another country, they will be um, suddenly adored or wanted in that way. Right. And I, I, you know, it's, it's hard to, it's hard for me to decide which side I fall on, you know, because I do think that there's something that kind of snaps you out of it when suddenly you're uncomfortable all the time, but there must be some other way to accomplish that instead of, I mean, kind of like what we were talking about with the New York Times travel writer, there must be some way to accomplish that without like throwing that burden onto the country that you're visiting. Like, you know, not seeing it as its own entity and instead seeing it as your like magical Xanax pill, you know, this is what's going to make me happy again. Yeah. Because it's, you know, at the end of the day, travel is an incredibly selfish act. Like we're, you know, when, when we talk about the, um, the benefits of travel, it's the benefits of, um, for us, you know, and, and that's certainly been like, you know, the, for a while there are all these sort of neuroscience books about what travel does to, to the travelers. But, you know, on the other side, it's like, well, what does travel do to the place that's being trod upon? You know, um, do, is there some sort of responsibility is, you know, I'm in Berlin right now is Berlin's job just to sort of transform me and get me laid and you know, whatever. Um, or do I owe Berlin something by being here and taking up its resources and its space? Um, and it's interesting to me that that's such a little considered um, 
part of travel writing, um, that it is just so inward and narcissistic and uh, it has so little thought about um, obligation. Right. Yeah. And I, you know, I wonder what would happen to that classic narrative that people really seek out. You know, I think a lot of, you know, readers or, you know, if you're looking for a movie or, or any sort of media, they look for that, you know, they, they look for that classic arc. Here's a person with a problem. Here's them deciding to get out of the problem. And this big crescendo of, you know, some montage of them walking through Rome and, and discovering that life is okay. And then they go back to America and everything is still okay. You know, they, they love that kind of narrative. And I wonder if people kind of, or writers in particular kind of feed into that because they're afraid of, you know, what if I wrote this essay all about how I'm taking up real estate here because I've been in an Airbnb for a week. And when I leave, some other traveler will come to this Airbnb. Meanwhile, there's a person from this country who doesn't have an apartment to live in. Yeah. So, I mean, when you were sort of, um, starting out and, and you started traveling, um, were there women that you were reading at that point or was it still, because I know the sort of, um, uh, canonized travel writer is almost entirely a dude up until very recently. Um, so when I started traveling, it was, it was definitely still like a, a Bruce Chatwin to keep me company thing. Um, so yeah. So, uh, was it a kind of masculine or feminine, um, thought process for you? You know, I obviously knew about Elizabeth Gilbert or, you know, Francis Mays. Um, I, before I started traveling, uh, was not super aware of, nor extremely interested in, to be honest, the travel writing world. Um, you know, lots of the people that I traveled with initially uh, introduced me to that that sector of, of reading simply because I was with, I mean, full disclosure, I was 21, you know, I was with a bunch of college kids. But, you know, lots of the women I was with at the time, you know, talked about Frances Mays in particular, you know, because we were going to, to stay in Florence, you know, oh, well, what if I meet a great Florentine and then we can buy this villa, you know, out side you know people I was with genuinely thought that was what was awaiting them during their study abroad experience and I just kind of was like well cool you know tell me more about that because I'd never really I mean maybe that just shows like a lack of depth in me but I'd never really like thought about that as a possibility um so you know after that obviously I was like well I got to see what this Francis Mays woman is all about so I you know read under the Tuscan sun and um you know, to be fair, the the love story was way more played up in the movie than it is in the book. Um, and, you know, Elizabeth Gilbert, I read that and it was as horrible of an experience as I expected it to be. Um, so it was mainly, you know, inspired by the fact that I went abroad and I was interacting with all these Americans who had already done the canonized reading and then were like regurgitating it to me. And I had no former understanding of it and was just floored that these people thought that those types of narratives were going to play out in their lives because it also played out in a book. Right. And I think that when I started reading uh, women travel writers, the the primary disappointment was how many of the travel experiences started because of a crisis and not because of a desire. Um, so it wasn't a kind of uh, burning restlessness. It was, I 
got a divorce or my mother died uh, or I got a divorce. <laughs> it's always a divorce. Um, and, uh, and that's what propels me into the world. It's not um, I have an inherent curiosity about the world. Um, and I think that that's really, um, um, I, I still see that template playing out over and over again. And I, I don't know if the, um, uh, what I was, what I was doing while you were breeding, uh, thing is, uh, a better option than that. Uh, because that just seems like wanting to present yourself as a rebel in the same way as, you know, putting some, um, uh, pins through your leather jacket is gonna, <laughs> is gonna like make you a punk. Right. Um, but yeah, so at least I think I read a lot more men when I was, when I was younger because I didn't know that there were other women outside of that template because it was such a, um, you know, a, a marketing category, really the, the woman in crisis who goes, who goes traveling and falls in love and all of her problems are, are magically solved. Right. And I wonder too, if it's, you know, there's, um, I just read a book, um, called the art of vanishing by Laura Smith, where, uh, you know, she gets married, I think at 25 and, um, she becomes obsessed with this, um, young writer who was named Barbara Follett who, you know, was a child prodigy basically and like published books when she was 12. And she also got married at a young age and ended up disappearing when she was 20, which is, you know, the classic like disappearing woman narrative. Um, but, you know, through wondering what happened to Barbara, you know, Laura opens up her marriage and, you know, goes searching for herself, quote unquote. Um, and, you know, in, in that kind of structure, I thought a lot about, you know, how women perhaps don't feel permission to be curious, you know? And I thought a lot about that when reading Kristen's book as well, maybe she didn't feel permission to be, you know, sexually free in America, um, which is valid, except that I don't know why the effort is then not put into making those things permissible here. And instead just saying, okay, well, I'm not allowed to do this. So I'm going to go abroad and try it out. You know, I, I just think that that effort could be put more into their daily life and question there as opposed to traveling and questioning it if that makes sense yeah absolutely and and i think that um the word permission uh ir irritates me a little bit um in the sense that um i don't know i i guess people talk about that with with women a lot like oh i didn't feel like i had permission to to travel or i didn't feel like i had permission to do this or that and it's just like well um you're you're an adult like we have we've gone through several waves of feminism at this point we have a lot of examples of sort of women out in the world like what what else do you fucking need like do you need like a graven invitation do you need everything to be made <laughs> you know easy and sweet for you like fuck you like go do something interesting you're boring the shit out of me um yeah, I, anytime somebody like sort of, oh, I'm transgressing a boundary, it's like, fuck you. Hundreds of thousands of women have transgressed that boundary. They just didn't sort of celebrate themselves for it. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, there's this one part in, in what I was doing while you were breeding where she says, you know, I'm not a slut in the United States of America or something like that. And it was this weird, weird thing because I could tell that like, okay, I'm going to say slut and I'm going to like, call out the fact that I travel to have sex and I don't see anything problematic in that. It's like, why aren't you a slut in the U S is that so bad? Like, 
if I was a slut in the U.S., is that bad? Is it only okay if I'm like that abroad? Am I only allowed to like use that word over there and not here? You know, it's just such a weird, like women are trying to break free from this, but at the same time caging ourselves in it. Yeah. Plus, I mean, you're only a slut with what, like, um, brown men or men who you can't understand very well because you don't share a language like that's pretty gross to me also i would just like to say for the record that i am only a slut in the united states and i never have sex when i travel so which i deeply admire i think that's great (laughs) but yeah that's really interesting of this idea that um travel then becomes a place for just sort of uh hedonism or um the uh, tossing off of expectations or whatever, um, which again, I think is really unfair to wherever you're going. Um, I don't know if uh, Berlin really deserves the hordes of drunk British men vomiting into its gutters that it, that it has to deal with every single day or the hordes of drunk British men puking in uh, Belgrade or anywhere else in Europe. Uh, British men in Europe, are the worst people in the world. Just in, just in case you didn't know, they are. They really are. Yeah, it's you know. I think too. I encountered a lot of drunk British men while traveling as well. And you know, there's this whole section of Florence, the Santa Croce district, that's named for this cathedral with all of these you know really historic parts. And there's just vomit everywhere. You know, it's <laughs> where. It's everywhere. And that's where people go to party. And I'm just, I always wondered, would people go to party around this one cathedral if tourists weren't here? If people weren't coming to Italy and thinking like, oh, I'm in Italy and everything I do is fake. And if I do something that makes an ass out of myself, like it doesn't count because I'm abroad. You know, I don't know why that's the sentiment of like, this doesn't count. So I'm going to just publicly spew everywhere. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it, it, to me, it, it's sort of like, it goes back to, to this idea of the um, uh, transformative power of travel that you can, you know, try on different versions, versions of yourself uh, while you're abroad that, that you might feel restricted from doing in your, in your daily life or whatever. But um, um but the sort of male version of that, I think, and the, the sort of like masculine equivalent of um, of the Elizabeth Gilbert narrative is the Timothy Ferris narrative um, of the uh, the world is an adventure that you're supposed to be having. Um, and so it's less of a kind of um, the world is going to give you love and sex. It's just that you're going to zip line through Mexico or, or something like that. Um, but I, I do think that uh, Timothy Ferris um, is, is the devil and <laughs> is to blame for a lot of these sort of uh, drunk British men in, in Europe somehow. Um, but yeah, it, it, to me, it's, a, it's, it's just a um, different expression of the same idea. Yeah, and it goes back to that concept that like, this country is existing for me to travel in it, not this country exists on its own as a place and I'm visiting it. You know, it's almost like that, um, that old adage about, you know, if a tree falls in a forest where no one's around, does anyone hear it? You know, it's like this country will only exist while I'm here looking at it. And the second that I leave and take my adventure elsewhere, it will cease to exist, you know, and not be marked by what I just did to it. You know, it's just this very like 
self-centered way of, of viewing things, you know, not as things that exist outside of you, but things that exist for you. Do you think that anybody would read the New York Times uh, 52 Places column if there was a sort of ethical component um, written into it? Is, well, I guess, is, is travel writing the right place to do that the wrong question? Because of course it is. But is the New York Times travel section, I guess, the right place to do it? Um Right. Yeah. This might sound uh, like I was assuming too much, but, you know, when I started reading the 52 places column, I kind of expected that to be part of it. You know, I don't, maybe I'm just, again, I have a, a strange sense of what, you know, the New York times should be and, and things like that. But I, I did kind of expect that to be more of a component, especially because some of the places that she's going to, I know are being chosen because of of the not happy things that are occurring there. You know, like I mean, San Juan. Come on, that's a definite you know hot button type place. And and I did expect it to be more more centered on the fact that you know people who are visiting places like that right now are providing a lot of revenue for those places because they're struggling and and you know what that means for the person who's traveling there and. You know, there was there was one part in particular where she's talking to somebody and they say, usually, you know, this time of year, the streets are just packed with people. And she says, you know, there was basically no one there. And you, what, what does that mean? I mean, OK, you gave me that like image and those facts, but could you fill in the subtext a little bit? I, I did kind of expect that from it. Um, and I'm I'm not sure if maybe that's something her editor takes out or if she has certain guidelines when it comes to what she does and does not say. But, um, I, you know. I do think that that's a, a good space to to address the impact that you have on the place that you're traveling. Yeah. I mean, I was wondering if it would just kill all the f fantasy aspect of it, um, but I don't see necessarily why it should. But at the same time, like a lot of these sort of, uh, you know, islands uh, that are on this list are obviously incredibly vulnerable to uh, to climate change. And will be heavily transformed by it in even the next couple of years, which makes it that kind of like gross Fabergé egg thing of it's so delicate. It's definitely probably going, you know, um, it, it, it will be destroyed. And so you should get in there and experience it while you can um, rather than, you know, you should not go. The thing that always sort of bothers me about when people talk about um over traveled places, you know, Venice is a kind of obvious example of, um, of some place that is actually being, um, physically ruined and destroyed by the mass travel in industry there. And where it is talked about, it's talked about in this kind of like, well, how do I then travel there ethically? It's like, well, maybe you just can't. Maybe you should just not go to Venice. Maybe Venice should ban um, the cruise ships. And that's such a radical thought that it hardly comes out of anybody's mouth um, because I think that we just reject the idea that there's something that we can't have or can't do. Um, but also places like the Galapagos Islands, you know, the, 
that that's been written about uh, for years now as being like, we need a decrease in, in tourism. We need fewer people to go there. Um, but they won't say, don't go there. It's just like, well, you should keep this in mind. You know, don't touch a lizard or whatever while you're there. Um, rather than pick somewhere else to go. Like the world is a big place. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to see Venice actually. Right, right. And I mean, there are those places that everyone has thought about for years and read about for years and had other people tell them about for years. And so not only do they go to it expecting, you know, this like weird collage that they've built through hearsay, but they feel like almost an entitlement to see it because obviously you would see the great wall in your life, or obviously you would see Venice because it's one of those places, you know, it's like one of those places on, on the list of it's it kind of a canon in itself. Yeah. And then it becomes, you know, one of the, the things that I think about a lot when I'm trying to, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I am traveling right now and, uh, I, I have been in the past very cagey about being public about the fact that I'm traveling mostly because I didn't know how to deal with it in that kind of like social media way. Um, because it so quickly turns into envy bait um, and the, you know, the selfie in, in, in Venice or the picture of your spaghetti or whatever the fuck. <laughs> um, and, uh, and that seems to be a large part of the travel experience now too, you know, sort of like going through the 52 places columnist, um, Instagram feed and, and that sort of thing. Um, and also just the fact that, that, that the, um, there are like affiliate links throughout that uh, column um, to so that they get a kickback if you buy a plane ticket to that place or book a hotel that she mentions and et cetera, et cetera. They get so much this this uh, like a contagious idea of uh, this is the good life. Look at how amazing this is. And it's hard to figure out like as a writer how to avoid feeling falling into that trap. Um, unless you just announce constantly, like when you're crying on the sidewalk, because <laughs> you're so fucking miserable and, and afraid. Um, yeah, it's hard to figure out because it, it just so easily turns into envy bait. Right. And, and it's strange because when I spent my most time abroad, you know, Instagram existed, but it wasn't necessarily like extremely used yet. But I remember even at the time and, you know, I didn't have a, a phone and I had, you know, my little snapper camera. Um, but at the time I would watch these people, um, you know, on the Ponte Vecchio, which is packed, you know, it's a packed bridge, you know, who would literally lay themselves out on the edge of the bridge, like some sort of, you know, muse from Greek legend or something and have their, their spouse take a picture of them. And even at that point, you know, when the whole like psychology of Instagram wasn't really talked about yet, you know, I would think about how that person was going to forever have a picture of themselves lying on a bridge that they didn't actually lie on. You know, they had a, a person take a picture of them doing that, but that memory will now be replaced in their mind as, oh, well, this is what I did when I was on the Ponte Vecchio. And, you know, it's that same concept except wider of now everyone thinks that, like, this plate of pasta is what I'm doing while I'm in Rome. And, you know, I have so many friends who, you know, show up in my feed all the time of, like, you know, they'll have a picture of themselves next to the leaning tower of Pisa and some cheesy caption and it gets like 500 likes, you know, and it's just, it creates this, this really like postcardy vision of what it's like to be traveling. And, um, you know, if anything, I feel like sometimes travel writing, that is something that I see it doing successfully is, you know, sometimes there are those essays that are written more about, 
you know, the time you got yelled at in the grocery store because you didn't know to put on gloves before you touched the fruit, you know, like you're not going to take a picture of that, but that's a great thing to write about. Um, and so, you know, I think that there's, there's something to be said for a longer form of expression when it comes to writing about those more non glamorous, um, aspects of travel. Yeah. And, and also in that, in that way of, um, you know, I don't remember how long it took me to realize that I could have, I could be miserable on a trip and have it be a valid experience. <laughs> but it did take me a while of, of, I am not ruining this trip. I am just having emotions while I'm traveling, uh, because one, one has emotions. And that's kind of like a, like a stupid, um, obvious thing to say. And yet, um, with the sort of, uh, look at me aspect of, uh, of the travel experience as it exists sort of online, um, one would never, uh, I guess, come to that conclusion on your own, just based on how other people do it. Um, so, so yeah. And, and I also think that it's important to, um, counteract envy, um, and to try to prevent it and to put it in your experiences into a context that aren't just like my life is so glamorous and, and wonderful, but there is definitely a segment of the population or, or your readership or whatever that, that will take any sort of foreign travel at all, um, any ability to any freedom or whatever, um, and, and point that out at you anyway. Right. And I mean, that whole concept too, you know, it does play back into what you were talking about earlier about affecting the place is, you know, if a lot of people take a picture at a certain place in a city, that's going to become a tourist destination and therefore change the landscape of that city. And maybe some other aspects of the city won't be viewed because of it. You know, same thing with the bridges in Florence, you know, there are these little, um, like platforms basically that jut out into the Arno because of the, um, the supports on the bridge. And so many tourists crawl out onto these platforms to take pictures that make them look like they're in the Arno that the police have had to block them off. You know, it's now a law in Florence that you can't crawl out onto these platforms. When I guarantee you that like no native Florentine was doing that, you know, it was, it was something that was created by people needing to take a picture like their friend took a picture, you know? Um, yeah, because it is, you know, well, now this is the thing that you know to do when you're in this place, because I saw it on somebody else's feed in the same way of like, um, we've had centuries of people writing about Venice. And so we assume we need to see Venice. Um, it's the same thing of just like, uh, it's easier to take somebody else's idea of what is valuable, what is interesting. Um, and then when you see uh, a person in the position of um, presenting a new idea or uh, at least a, a nuanced idea of that. Um, it's frustrating that so many people sort of rely on cliche, which is, I mean, we keep coming back to this column at, at the New York times, but, uh, but that's, what's so frustrating to me is that it's such a big platform. Uh, you can present a new idea of what new Orleans is like. You can present a new idea of what travel is like and what you're supposed to do while you're traveling. Um, and for the most part, you know, and I, you know, I, I do have a little hope that, that it might get better as it gets along. Um, but it's just relying on these very old, uh, cliches about places and travel, um, and falling into the same sort of template, uh, that everybody else has written in, 
Um, and it and it's really not sort of stretching the form. And I think that the form has to be stretched because, you know, we're we are going to be the generation that kills Venice unless we think of somewhere else to go. <laughs> right. Right. And I think, you know, that makes me think, too, of when you ask me, you know, do I do I think that writing about, you know, the impact that travelers have on the places should be addressed because it's the New York Times. And I mean, I think that's a that's a perfect way to conclusively say, yes, it should. You know, it is one of the most, if, you know, not the most visible platform, if she wrote about something different, maybe other people would see things differently. Right. Yeah. Because it is such a, um, you know, a, the New York Times is obviously like a, a, is a problem, uh, but it is um, an enormous audience and it is an enormous influence, whether um, it deserves to be or not. Um, and, I, I don't know that people talk enough about the responsibilities of the writer. Um, I think because so much of writing in the, in the last couple generations has been about personal expression um, rather than sort of a uh, obligation to an audience or, or to the, to the form itself. Um, and so it just leads into the, these kind of self-reflective places again and again. And, um, and it, and it's frustrating to watch, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, so we're we're kind of running out of time. So I wanted to ask before you, uh, before we go, um, where where are you going next? Do you know? Uh, where am I going next? You know, I'm going to the. This is cliche. I'm going. <laughs> are you going to Venice? I swear to God, <laughs> I'm definitely. I've never been, and I don't think I will go to Venice. Um, but I am going to the Grand Canyon. Uh, I've never been before, and I'm going for you know, maybe 48 hours, I'm flying into Vegas, I'm driving to Flagstaff, I'm staying in a $25 a night youth hostel, and uh, going to the Grand Canyon in the morning, and then taking a red eye back to New York. So um, yes, I'm definitely going to be seeing one of those, those places on the list, um, but hopefully doing it in the best way possible. Good. I hope I get to read about it some somewhere. Yes, I hope you do too. We'll see what comes out of it. <laughs> This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook.